All parties are innocent until proven guilty. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I get, like, in the beginning of relationships, all you want to do is be with that person, but it was a lot. I just thought it was just weird. But never thought this would happen. That's not something you go to in your mind. You're just like, that's just weird, but whatever. She knows what she's doing. I was putting my kids to bed. And I had gotten a message on Facebook from one of Leanne's friends. She said, hey, this is so-and-so. Lisa, which is Leanne's mom, would like for you to call her. Here's her number. And that's not a message that you normally get. So I'm like, what's going on? I called her mom, and I just, my heart dropped. I'm like, what? Like, it didn't sink in. And now I think sometimes, too, like, this is not something I'm ever going to escape from. Like, this is something I feel like is is going to always stay with me, but you can't let it consume your life. I can't sit here and be sad every day. She definitely would not want me to do that. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. I'm multitasking right now. I'm doing a hair mask. I did an everything shower. This is why I love podcasting. We can look however we want. Honestly, I don't need any of my old clothes that I used to wear. (laughs) I don't need any of my clothes. Like I wear sweats or leggings every day, like working from home. Yeah. We need nothing. I need nothing. I need like two outfits. I still do online shop all the time for like special occasion outfits that I literally never wear. And then I wear the same pair of sweatpants almost every single day. Like, why do we do this to ourselves? You know, it's, it's a gift and a curse. Like I don't (laughs) miss going into an office every day, but you know, I miss feeling girly. I miss putting makeup on. (laughs) I do too. Do we have any housekeeping other than uh, join our Patreon if you are looking for bonus true crime, not bonus, more full length episodes of the first degree. Join us over on Patreon. Yeah. And another announcement would be our killing time is going to be back soon. So bear with us with that. There are some obstacles we're figuring out with it, but we figured we're going to turn lemons into lemonade by you know, giving you the opportunity to try out Patreon. We're throwing a couple episodes in our feed on Thursdays for now. And yeah, Killing Time will be back. Oh, it's going to be back and better than ever. We've been brainstorming ideas. It's going to be good. Some great, exciting guests. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's going to be good stuff. Can't wait. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. When the unthinkable happens to someone we love and foul play is suspected, we trust that justice will take its course. We know the wheels turn slowly, but we understand investigations and legal proceedings move slowly also. In fact, we want law enforcement to dot their I's and cross their T's. After all, it's important for an investigation to be thorough and comprehensive if prosecutors are to have the best chance of securing a conviction. But what happens when things go quiet? when there's no news coverage and suddenly everything grinds to a halt. 
despite the victim's loved ones fiercely advocating and desperately hoping for some level of legal accountability. We begin today's case on August 29th of 2021. On the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina devastating the Gulf Coast, Hurricane Ida made landfall near Port Fouchon, Louisiana on the Gulf of Mexico. The intense Category 4 storm killed over 100 people and caused over $75 billion in damage. On a more cheery note, on the pop music charts, Justin Bieber and The Kid Leroy were at their third week at the number one spot with Stay, Honestly, a Bop, It Never Gets Old. True Bop. It's so good. Mm-hmm. And number two was Ed Sheeran with his hit, Bad Habits. And in the movie theaters, people were going to see Candyman, followed by the action comedy Free Guy, starring Ryan Reynolds. In the setting for today's story is Peoria, Arizona. Situated in central Arizona, the city of around 191,000 people is located about 13 miles northwest of Phoenix. Founded in 1886, Peoria takes its moniker from its Illinois namesake, which was the original home of the Arizona city's white settlers. The eighth largest city in the state averages around 300 days of sunny weather every year, making it a perfect place for those looking to take to Peoria's nationally renowned golf courses, hiking trails, or the scenic Lake Pleasant Regional Park. Peoria's climate also makes it the ideal location for interstate baseball teams to undertake their spring training, with both the San Diego Padres and Seattle Mariners using the city as its training base. Our first story for today's story is named Jessie. So Jessie didn't grow up in Arizona, but all the way over in Virginia. She was in elementary school when she met another girl named Leanne, who had been born in New Mexico. Leanne was an only child, shout out, but she and Jesse soon became best friends in large part due to Leanne's effervescent, energetic personality, her quick wit, and her loyalty to those that she loved. Well, I met Leanne around third grade. We lived down in Virginia, and the neighborhoods were kind of intertwined together. So her neighborhood kind of backed up to my neighborhood. And back then, I mean, it was the 90s, everyone just rode their bike, and all the kids were outside. So we just met one day playing outside, and that was it. We just formed a bond, and we were like sisters. She would call my parents mom and dad. I called her parents mom and dad. She was always happy. She was bubbly. She was silly. She always wanted to go and do stuff, even when we were just sitting home, you know, because we were so young. It was just always fun. I've always said you could feel her love. When she loved you, you knew she loved you. You could feel it. She loved hard. Around the seventh grade, Leanne moved away to Arizona, but she and Jesse stayed in touch, maintaining a close friendship despite the distance. We still kept in touch. She would fly up. She came to my graduation for high school. She came up for my wedding. She came up numerous times just to visit and just stuck. And she was so caring and she always wanted to make sure that she stayed involved and knew what was going on in your life and knew what was going on with your family and talked to you about problems. And even when something happened or you were sad or upset, she would always say something to make you laugh. She was not somebody that would ever give up or lay down for a fight. She was ready to go. She was ready to take on the world. And it didn't matter what was in her way. She was just an amazing person. Jesse eventually moved to New York while Leanne graduated high school in 2006 and went on to marry a guy named Randall. In 2011, 23-year-old Leanne became a registered nurse. And in 2012, she and her husband moved to North Plate, Nebraska. 
But by 2014, they were back in Arizona, where Leanne got a job as an organ transplant nurse at the prestigious Mayo Clinic and went on to obtain her Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Despite the great strides Leanne was making in her career and the amazing reputation she developed as a compassionate, driven, and dedicated nurse, her marriage soon hit the rocks. Leanne started dating another man who we're going to call Nick. She became pregnant, but unfortunately things ended between the couple in the fall of 2018. In May of 2019, 31-year-old Leanne gave birth to their daughter, who we're going to call Avery, and her daughter instantly became her entire world. Less than three months later, Leanne had more happy news. She was now dating a guy she'd attended Sunrise Mountain High School with, 32-year-old Jason Beck. Jason seemed to make Leanne happy, but things did seem to be moving a little fast. So Jessie herself didn't know Jason, and she was kind of concerned that Leanne was moving on without taking the time to heal following her breakup from Nick. It sort of seemed like Jason was wanting to create this whole accelerated emotional intimacy where Leanne and Avery would just kind of be entirely reliant on him. We're kind of talking about maybe like a love bombing situation. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Jessie trusted Leanne to make her own decisions, and she felt like she was going to know what was best for her. It wasn't long before Leanne and Jason were engaged. It really was a whirlwind romance because by early September of 2019, Leanne was pregnant with their first child. I never met him. She had her daughter, but her and her daughter's father split. So it always made me uncomfortable how quick everything was. Like she had had the baby and then two months later, he's asking her to marry him and he's taking on the father role for this kid that he's never met, which a lot of people say, oh, he's a good guy. Not a lot of guys would do that. But to me, it just felt not normal. Like you just started dating this person and now all of a sudden you're, you're all in to be this person's father. To me, that just felt very, very weird. But I trusted her and she knew what she was doing because of the person she was. She was very smart. She didn't let people walk all over her. So I didn't say anything. Again, like in the beginning of relationships, all you want to do is be with that person. But it was a lot. I just thought it was just weird. But whatever. She knows what she's doing. In February of 2020, Leanne and Jason married. And in May, they welcomed a son who we're going to call Caleb. By March of the following year, they've moved into a house in Peoria owned by Jason's mom, Julie, who lived right next door. Everything seemed to be coming together for Leanne and her little family. Then one day, in the late summer of 2021, Jessie received some unthinkable news. I was putting my kids to bed, and I had gotten a message on Facebook from one of Leanne's friends. She said, hey, this is so-and-so, Lisa, which is Leanne's mom, would like for you to call her. Here's her number. And that's not a message that you normally get. So I'm like, shit, what's going on? I figure, you know, she got into a car accident or she got hurt. Something happened, and I called her mom. The news was about as horrible as you could imagine. Leanne, her friend since elementary school, had suddenly died. I didn't find out she had passed until like a week and a half after it happened because I'm so far away. I'm in New York, and she's in Arizona. We don't have mutual friends that we talk to like that. Jesse was in complete shock. Leanne hadn't been unwell, so was this an awful accident? What the hell happened? To answer all of these questions, you know the drill. We gotta go back. Soon after hearing the news, Jessie spoke to Leanne's mother. 
It became clear that Leanne's family not only felt that Leanne's death was suspicious, but they suspected that someone else had been involved. And that someone was allegedly her husband, Jason. I texted Leanne and called her and nothing. And I called her mom. It was probably like 1030. And all she said was he killed her. And I just, my heart dropped. I'm like, what? Like, it didn't sink in. Jesse had known that Jason was abusive and that he had a reputation for being aggressive with both men and women, especially when he'd been drinking. Because almost three months earlier, Leanne confessed the details of her troubled marriage to a horrified Jesse on a phone call. Leanne told Jesse bits and pieces, but that year alone, she'd sought two orders of protection against Jason. And in the months leading up to Leanne's death, she'd been trying to leave the marriage. Throughout the relationship, things had not been great. Jason was possessive, controlling, jealous, vindictive, and had really isolated Leanne from her support network. He often accused Leanne of cheating. He took her work laptop and her cell phone. He took her keys, and he even gained unauthorized access to her workplace. She came out and told me about the abuse June before she passed, but I knew things were happening before. I just didn't know how intense they were. She didn't tell me how intense everything was and how bad things were. Like, I knew they were having fights, and I knew the cops were called, and I knew he had kind of shoved her, but she had never really said as bad as it was. But as you just heard, the abuse escalated and became physical, resulting in Jason being arrested twice. Once was for strangling Leanne, and the other for throwing her into a wall and slamming her hand in a front door to stop her from leaving. And of course, these were just two instances of violence perpetrated against Leanne that we know about. He pushed her against the wall, or he pushed her down to the ground, and he would take her laptop or take her work cell phone and not let her work, lock her in the house or out of the house, saying that she was cheating on him, would take her debit card, would take her car keys, would take her license. He choked her. He would get on top of her and, like, push her face down into the bed. She had bruises all over her body. They had to call 911 one time. He chased her down the street barefoot in his car, and she had to hop in a stranger's car at one point just to get away from him. To make things worse, Jesse told us that Jason would often call his mom, Julie, who lived next door, and she would insert herself into all of these situations. She wasn't there to help intervene or de-escalate things, but she was more so acting as an enabler, taking Jason's side and making Leanne feel like any conflict that was happening was all her fault. Police reports show that Jason was said to be reliant on his mom in a really unhealthy kind of way. Jason took a plea deal for the first offense, but he failed to attend the court-ordered anger management classes. And it's unclear why the conditions of this plea deal weren't enforced. Leanne, meanwhile, wasn't herself, with her coworkers noticing her withdrawn demeanor, weight loss, and general lack of bubbliness that she was known for. And by June of 2021, things had gotten so bad that Leanne had ended the relationship. And in a text message to one friend, it was clear that she was really in fear for her life. I didn't really know it was as bad as it was until kind of towards the end. I mean, I knew she had moved out and all that. While Jessie was sickened, knowing that Jason was abusing her friend, she was relieved that Leanne seemed to be doing all of the right things. She moved out, and she moved in with her dad, and she got an order of protection. And she was making arrangements to divorce Jason. So she was clearly done with this relationship. They still had joint custody of their son, Caleb. 
but Jason told a girl he'd started dating that he was worried about not being able to see his son. She also was saying, you know, her plan, like she's moved out. She's living with her dad. She's got a safe house. She's not allowed to come around. She's got to order protection. She's filing for divorce. But as we know, the most dangerous time for women in an abusive relationship is when they leave. And this can last up to two years. We also know that cycles of abuse are really nuanced. And it's very difficult for women to escape from them. And as a result of such, in the week of August of 2021, Leanne had started spending time with Jason again, and they were due to attend a wedding together the following week. And this reflects the dynamics of how much power, intimidation, and fear are at play, especially when children are involved in these abusive relationships. Two days before she had passed, she was supposed to go to Nebraska for her other friend's wedding. And she had, you know, two kids. And I think she was more playing it safe because of them, trying to protect the kids. So I think she was trying to just be neutral grounds for that reason. She was supposed to go to that. I think it was like September 3rd. Eventually, there was a ticket for him. So I think she was scared for her and the kids. So she kind of maybe came back around to kind of trick him, I should say, if that makes sense. I don't know the details of what was going on right before she had passed, but that's all I know is the wedding, you know, and somehow she agreed for him to come. Of course, immediately following Leanne's death, her family and friends were hoping for answers as to how something so terrible could have happened, because her death wasn't accidental, and it wasn't a suicide. And the reason her loved ones suspected Jason was involved was partly because Leanne was in his company the night she died. But here's the thing. No one was arrested. Why? The story that Jesse got about the circumstances of Leanne's death went like this. According to Jason, he and Leanne were in the process of reconciling, but they were keeping this kind of on the down low to everybody around them. Nobody knew that they were rekindling things due to the active order of protection against Jason. But they'd started talking regularly again about a month before, and Leanne had brought Caleb over every day to see his dad. Then about five days before Leanne died, she and Jason started seeing each other romantically again. During that time, Leanne had also been wearing her wedding ring again, according to her boss. Just after 2 p.m. on August 28th, Leanne brought Caleb over to Jason's in her GMC Yukon. That night, Jason's mom, Julie, babysat Caleb next door while Leanne and Jason went out on a date night, leaving around 5.30 p.m. with Jason driving the Yukon. They'd already had a few drinks at home, but continued drinking at various local bars and restaurants. Jason said that Leanne had about eight alcoholic drinks during the whole night. And according to Jason, while Leanne joked about being drunk, he felt that she really was drunk and he was also drunk. Jesse learned that Jason couldn't remember what time he and Leanne arrived home, but as they pulled into the driveway, they got into an argument. And as Jason was parking, Leanne jumped out of the vehicle, running into the house through the internal garage door. According to the story that Jason told, he said that as she ran into the house, Leanne bumped into some walls in the dark. And according to Jason, when they got in bed, Leanne vomited. So Jason undressed her and he took her to the shower so she could get cleaned up. He claims that he showered with Leanne to help her, and then he left her briefly sitting up in the shower while he went to remake the bed. The story that he said was he put her in the shower, she was laying in the fetal position, and they have a stand-up shower. He helped her back to bed, she threw up, 
When Jason returned to the shower, he says that he observed Leanne lying on the floor in the fetal possession, like she'd fallen over. He claimed that he got a towel to try to dry her off, then dragged her out of the shower and put her back in bed. But because she was still feeling like she was going to throw up, Jason said he went to get a bowl from the kitchen. Came back and she was not responsive. He heard like a gasp and that was it. According to Jason, when he came back, Leanne was laying on her back, not breathing and starting to turn blue. Panicked and hysterical, he called his mom, Julie, who rushed over from next door and told Jason to call 911. The operator talked Jason through performing CPR on Leanne, who was still naked and had been moved to the floor. Just going to put this out there. It seems odd that you would go get your mom before Mm. calling 911 when someone's not breathing. Sketchy. Doesn't it just seem like... Someone's not breathing, you call 911, then go get your mom. And then call your mom to come help. Yeah. Bad decision from the jump. Red flag showing up. Right. When first responders arrived, they found Jason and Julie both crying hysterically in the bedroom, and Julie was filming the scene with her cell phone. Jason, who was only wearing boxers, kept saying, she can't be dead. He was also heard saying he wanted to die, that he might as well kill himself, and that he should be taken to jail. Interesting. But he also had some injuries in the form of a contusion on his left eye and an abrasion on his left calf. When the police had got there that night, she was on the floor completely naked. He was doing CPR. His mom had already been there. When the cops got there, they had to do a CPR. They couldn't get her back. They noticed her injuries. He never mentioned them. Okay, here's the thing, an important thing. When first responders arrived and addressed Leanne's condition, they noticed that she had bruising and injuries inconsistent with someone who had just randomly stopped breathing, or even someone who had just randomly fallen in the shower. Leanne had abrasions of varying size and degree all over her body, on her left buttock, her back, shoulder blades, the back of both heels, her left forearm, her knees, her right foot, her left hand and knuckles, and on her shins. And it also looked like she had road rash, like she'd been dragged across a hard surface. She also had a bloody scalp laceration and a golf ball-sized lump on the back of her head. There's conflicting reports about Leanne's body temperature from those who arrived on the scene. A firefighter and a paramedic found she was wet from the shower and cold to the touch, which suggested that Leanne had been deceased for some time. Yet a police officer reported that he'd found her warm. Personally, I'd go with the paramedic on this one, but that's just me. Leanne was pronounced dead at around 3.30 a.m., but there were other things about the scene that really raised other questions. There were small dried blood stains on the exterior of the internal garage door, on a hallway wall, and floor outside the main bedroom, and on the floor of the main bedroom. So why were there blood stains? Where did this blood come from, and whose blood was it? It's worth noting that according to the police reports, they were small stains, about one centimeter across. But there was more. In the bedroom, clothes were strewn all over the floor, and the bedsheets were also stained with blood. There was blood on the comforter, on the bedsheet, and on three pillowcases. One of the pillows had a water stain on it as well. Again, though, why is there blood here? Where does the blood come into play in Jason's story? The shorts and shirt that Jason had worn that night were also stained with blood. On the right leg, there was a three-centimeter-long transfer stain, and there were three stains on the left leg. But Jason was no longer wearing these clothes when the investigators arrived. Again, sketchy, sketchy, sketchy. And also, on one side of the bed, there appeared to be vomit. But there were other odd things in the room that warranted further exploring. 
Like on the dresser, there was a list of names Jason said were guys Leanne had been talking to on Tinder, with the word explain written at the bottom. In the bathroom, a yellow towel on the floor had what appeared to be a small blood transfer stain and a small amount of dark hair consistent with Leanne's. Luminol testing later also revealed presumptive blood stains on the bathroom floor, both outside and inside the shower. In the garage, the hood of Leanne's GMC Yukon felt warm to the touch, like the engine had been running fairly recently. And then there was this. The front passenger side window had a fresh-looking spiderweb crack, and there was blood on the passenger seat and the dashboard in front and the interior of the sunroof. So we have a fresh crack in the windshield with blood. Yeah. Weird. There's a lot going on. So also found in the garage was a plastic bag that was tied shut, and inside was a substance that appeared to be vomit. In the front entryway of the home, a paramedic also noticed a mop and a yellow bucket that was containing dirty water. So this, again, was another thing that was, like, kind of out of place. When police first asked Jason to try to explain how the blood was deposited from the garage to the main bedroom, he said, couldn't tell you. When Jason was asked to explain Leanne's injuries, he couldn't say how she'd gotten road rash in the bump on her head, saying he didn't know how Leanne was bleeding and that he never touched her. Jason stated he had the contusion on his eye from his son throwing something at him, and the abrasion on his calf came from the running board of the Yukon. Hours after Jason's first interview, he suddenly gave police a more fleshed-out account of what happened and how Leanne sustained those road rash injuries. He said that on the way home from the drive, they went through a gated community, which was a shortcut to their way home. Leanne said that she needed to pee, and before Jason could stop the car, Leanne jumped out while the car was going around five miles per hour, and she fell by the rear passenger door. He also added that some of Leanne's injuries could have been caused by rough sex, which is freaking disgusting. He said that they were driving to the neighborhood to listen to a song that they liked on the radio, and she had to pee. She hopped out of his truck when he was coming to a stop. And she fell. And that's where all those injuries came from. It it doesn't add up. What I can't understand is the extensive amount of injuries and what he's saying happened. There's no way. Then, according to his story, after Jason helped Leanne back in the car, he said she seemed fine. But while they were driving around listening to music, she became upset after Jason received a phone call from another woman around 12.07 a.m. They argued. But according to Jason, their argument never turned physical. Well, where did that spiderweb crack on the windshield come from then? Mm. Where she was Mm. sitting in the passenger side. Yep. So they argued, and he told investigators he hadn't noticed the Yukon's cracked window, but said it must have happened at some earlier time. Jason now also explained that when Leanne was in the shower, he scooped up her vomit into a Walmart bag from the bedroom, but didn't know where he ended up putting the bag. He added that the mop bucket was from three days prior, and he didn't clean it up with the night before. What was most odd to detectives was when Jason was asked why he didn't mention the part about Leanne jumping out of the Yukon while it was moving earlier. And Jason said he just remembered it now. Then in a third interview, Jason said that Leanne had his phone with her when she jumped out of the Yukon to pee before they got into the argument about the phone call. Jason explained that he couldn't say where Leanne had jumped out of the Yukon, but when she did, Jason stopped and got out to check her. He said he saw Leanne lying on the road on her back near the right rear tire. Jason said that he sat her up and that she said something about peeing, but said he didn't know if she actually had peed or not. 
Jason helped Leanne back into the Yukon and drove straight home. So there's a lot of changing stories, like all of the changes in his account about the phone call being the aggravating factor of this argument in the Yukon, coupled with the note found on the dresser of like lists of things to confront Leanne about, the spider web crack with the blood on the seat. Like I can kind of see how this unfolded myself and I'm not an investigator. Yeah, it's not that hard to kind of see what's going on. History of abuse, like been arrested for strangling her. Like what's not really obvious about this to anyone who's witnessing and hearing this? Right. And obviously we're not buying anything that's going on. And our first degree Jesse didn't buy any of his bullshit explanations either, especially the one about Leanne voluntarily jumping out of a moving vehicle. I mean, that is insane. And taking Jason's documented history of violence against Leanne into account, in addition to those mysterious injuries that she sustained, her loved ones thought that something more sinister had occurred than what Jason was letting on. So it turns out there was a bartender and the bartender's wife, and they knew Jason, and they had been at one of the bars where Jason and Leanne had been having their date night. And later, they went to police and said that they heard Jason say during the evening that He was, quote, dealing with a crazy bitch in reference to Leanne. It was also noticed that Leanne wouldn't make eye contact with anyone, and Jason wouldn't let her answer any questions when people asked them. And while the couple weren't believed to have gotten into a public altercation when they were out and in public, witnesses recall that Leanne appeared to be quiet and withdrawn at times, like she'd been reprimanded by Jason recently, who seemed to be talking aggressively to her at one point in the night. Jason later denied that there had been any tension between himself and Leanne while they were out. Of course, this didn't change the minds of Leanne's heartbroken family and friends. They not only felt Jason had lied to police initially, but that he told a further lie about Leanne jumping out of the Yukon. Plus, the evidence present at the scene combined with his history of violence, it all just looked really bad. Plus, Leanne hadn't been the only woman he'd physically abused. Trust me, we'll get to that later. Through this whole process, Jason was routinely fingerprinted and DNA tested, and search warrants were executed on the home of both Jason and his mom, Julie, and their phones, as well as the Yukon and Jason's Dodge pickup. Julie was interviewed, but when police asked to take her phone from her, she initially refused to and became very argumentative, saying that I didn't do anything wrong and my son didn't do anything either. An aside about Jason's phone is that he realized that he lost it. Perhaps when he got out of the Yukon near the gated community. So in order to hand it into the police, he had to drive out to this gated community where he claimed Leanne jumped out of the Yukon, and he had to do this the next day to look for it. He eventually retrieved it from the side of the road near where he'd pulled over. So when police went out to this area, they didn't find any evidence of an accident or any evidence showing where Leanne may have fallen out of the Yukon. And nothing of further interest to the investigation was found via the search warrants. But at Leanne's autopsy, she was found to have an 11-centimeter skull fracture. Regarding her head injuries, the medical examiner noted the following. These injuries would likely not have been immediately incapacitating, and the decedent would have been conscious and mobile for a short period of time. These injuries could be consistent with a fall or jump out of a moving motor vehicle. However, being pushed out of a moving motor vehicle or other inflicted trauma cannot be ruled out. The medical examiner noted something else intriguing, saying the following. Additional information provided by the decedent's husband in multiple post-incident interviews was somewhat inconsistent. Leanne's cause of death was concluded to be blunt force trauma to the back of the head. Yet the manner of death remained pending the completion of the criminal investigation. 
Something else odd is that no gravel or asphalt was found in Leanne's hair or her head wound. This suggests that she was perhaps struck with something or her head was slammed into something and that her head injury wasn't caused by impact with the road. Jesse was one of many people who thought for sure that Jason would at least be arrested for something, given all the evidence we pulled straight from the police reports, and given his violent history with Leanne. But that's not what happened. The cause of death was blunt force trauma to the back of her head. It was about, I bought like a four-inch skull fracture in the back of her head. The passenger window of her car was cracked and wet. There was blood in the car. She had road rash on her shoulders, her hip her buttocks, her heels, kind of like she had been dragged. There's blood splatter, like spots all over the house. Her pillow was saturated in blood, globs of hair everywhere in the bathroom. They were like, well, why didn't you say that to us before? You said you didn't see any injuries. Oh, well, I had forgotten. How do you forget something like that? I can't believe that they took him in that night and they released him the next morning. On September 4th, the medical examiner's office released Leanne's body to Jason without investigators' knowledge, and this is also despite him not entitled to this due to the pending dissolution of their marriage. Jason arranged a second private autopsy without Leanne's family's knowledge. The only unredacted information in the report says that Leanne's injuries are consistent with a reported fall or ejection from a motor vehicle. There were no patterned injuries noted that would be consistent with tread marks. So we try to get her, steal her body, they get private autopsy to kind of, I'm thinking to hide stuff because nobody really knew. Months go by, we had to be really hush-hush about it because he would sue anybody or try to sue. He just, he's an awful person. The same month, Jason took a voluntary polygraph test arranged via his attorney and passed. According to the police report, no significant deception was indicated when Jason was asked if he caused Leanne's head injury. Following Leanne's traumatic death and Jason's release from custody without charges the following morning, Jesse, like many of Leanne's friends and family members, decided that the only way to get some traction was for her to get involved and advocate for her friend. Jesse connected with some of Leanne's friends in Arizona, submitted FOIA requests for police reports, and began reaching out to people online in an attempt to form a compelling circumstantial case against Jason. And based on all those documents, these are the observations that we've made about what the evidence tells us compared to Jason's narrative. The fact that he couldn't say what time they arrived home is pretty convenient for Jason's story, given the questions over Leanne's approximate time of death, and also given the confusion about the temperature of her body when the responders arrived, and also the warm temperature of the Yukon when the responders arrived. However, from security camera footage in Jason's neighborhood, vehicle headlights are seen at 12.28 a.m., pulling into a property understood to be Jason's. Based on surveillance footage timestamps, traffic camera footage, and how long it would have taken them to drive home, it appears that these lights were Jason and Leanne arriving home in her Yukon. So what happened in the last two hours between them apparently arriving home and Jason calling Julie at 3.04 a.m.? If Leanne had been dead for some time as the firefighter and the paramedic felt that she was, then why was her body wet? And also, why didn't he call 911 sooner the second she stopped breathing? How is it that she's cold when responders arrived? Which is another question I have. Mm, Yeah. From the first time the first responders arrived, they noted inconsistencies in Jason's behavior. 
He'd swing back and forth from being hysterical and inconsolable to being perfectly calm and showing no emotion. Also, Jason's claim that he didn't know the source of the blood that was found throughout the entire house and the Yukon seems really hard to believe. If he was so close to Leanne as to be washing her hair in the shower, how could he not notice her bleeding and from any of her injuries? And according to Leanne's autopsy, at the time of her death, she had a full bladder. But in one interview, Jason said that she peed on the side of the road just before they got home. And from what we can find in the health literature, an adult's bladder takes 9 to 10 hours to fill completely, so why is this inconsistency happening? It doesn't appear that any tests were even done to determine whether Leanne's injuries would be the same if somebody was pushed out from a car doing 5 miles per hour instead of jumping. As for Jason's cell phone, he initially told police that Leanne got upset when a woman called him and that the phone was in the Yukon. Hours later, he tells police he didn't know where his phone was, and he changed his story to say that Leanne had it in her possession when she jumped out of the car and that it somehow got left under a bush on the side of the road. And then there's the unanswered questions about other evidence. It's not clear whether the mop and the bucket were ever even taken into evidence and the dirty water ever tested. Leanne had actually been due at work at 6 a.m. that morning. So this would have been three hours after this 911 call came in. Leanne was due at work. So this is where it gets kind of interesting. At 2.51 a.m., 16 minutes before Jason called 911, a text was sent from Leanne's phone to a coworker saying, Hey girl, I'm not feeling good at all. Major stomach pain. I'm not sure who I'm taking over for, but I won't be able to as of now. I'm running to the ER by my house. If someone can cover, hopefully just for a couple of hours. I'll text Candace in the AM after the doctor. I don't want to text all the girls. This in itself was apparently very weird because the usual practice for Leanne to swap a shift if needed was to text her coworkers group chat or contact her boss directly, not just text one person. This is also just suspicious for a lot of reasons, and we'll let you come to your own conclusions about why. But Leanne's coworkers were really suspicious, so they contacted their boss. But it's not really clear whether detectives asked Jason about whether he even saw Leanne send that text or if she said anything to him about calling into work sick. Right. And despite sounding unwell in the text, no gastrointestinal issues or condition was identified during Leanne's autopsy. And this is what gets me. Everything Jason is saying is to paint Leanne as being totally incapacitated by alcohol, okay? That she was so drunk that she caused all her own injuries. She bumped into walls. She jumped out of a Yukon. She's so wasted. Yet she can send a completely, perfectly coherent text message. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't sound like she'd be able to text someone that grammatically correctly, that yeah. coherently, that decidedly, like it just doesn't align with everything else he said. So either she was sober and something bad happened Mm -hmm. or more sober than he's saying she was, or he sent that text. Like none of that makes sense if she was as drunk as he said. Yeah, absolutely. And aside from that, police felt that something was kind of off and sketchy with Jason's mom's behavior as well. When police asked Julie if she recorded that video at the scene, she ended up denying it at first. But upon analyzing her phone, investigators saw the video that Julie had recorded as she arrived at Jason's at 3.06 in the morning, a minute before he called 911. According to a police report, this suggested Julie knew what had occurred before entering the house. Her later explanation for recording was that she thought Leanne was faking her condition. But it appeared to investigators that Julie was secretly filming Jason's act for the camera. 
And the next day, an officer told Leanne's ex named Nick that they were investigating the death as a homicide. But Jason wasn't even arrested or charged for the much lesser offense of negligent homicide. So what does that even mean at that point? In Arizona, police don't have to wait to submit the report to the county attorney's office before arresting someone. It was only in October of 2022 that Leanne's case was finally upgraded from a death investigation to a homicide investigation. Jason was still free, but detectives submitted the report recommending that he be prosecuted for negligent homicide. Deducing that at the time, the police believed that Jason's actions had directly caused Leanne's death. However, the next month, Maricopa County attorney Rachel Mitchell declined to prosecute Jason, forming the view that based on the available evidence, there was no reasonable likelihood of a conviction. And that was it. And we know that some DAs aren't as aggressive as others when it comes to pursuing a case in court. And if they're not 100% confident, they won't prosecute. Rachel Mitchell has committed to reviewing Leanne's case if new evidence is uncovered. But like we said, questions linger about why Jason hasn't been charged or just arrested, even for something as baseline as negligent homicide, something way easier to prove, especially in this case. Like, sure, intent, we don't know, right? They were both mm -hmm. drunk. But I think it's clear that he had a hand in her being killed. Did they even ever test his blood alcohol content? Do you know that or anything? That I don't know. Or hers? But like <laughs> I'm sure her toxicology, yes. But um, I'm not sure about his because he admitted to being drunk. Right, right, right. So Jesse has formed the view that part of the reason that Jason hasn't been charged with anything yet could actually be political. The county attorney also has the power to refer the matter back to police, instructing them to continue investigating. So why hasn't she in this case? Is it a resourcing issue or is there something more going on at a high level behind closed doors? I can't even wrap my head around it. How he's out, how he's not in jail, how he's not even being investigated further than what it was. I don't get it. Our hope is when she's out of office, because We've done a whole backstory on her, too. She's not a great person either. So once she's out of there and the election comes, we're hoping the new one will do something. If you're wondering what's happened with Caleb, initially he was quickly removed from Jason's custody and given to one of Leanne's family members. But in June of 2022, Jason regained custody, which is terrifying for everyone who knew Leanne. So he loses his kid. And the son goes to the state, but one of Leanne's family members takes him. And he wasn't able to know where he was, who had him. So the visitations were a couple hours a week, all supervised at the state's place. And then a third party would do transportation and all that. That lasted about almost a year. But now he's back with him. Jesse has taken an active role in trying to get justice for Leanne, including tracking down and speaking to at least three of Jason's ex-girlfriends prior to Leanne, who police have also spoken to. And according to Jesse, each has shared stories of abuse that are very similar to Leanne's. They do have three or four ex-girlfriends of his that came out to testify against him or to make a deposition, and they all say the exact same thing about him. What he did to them is exactly what he did to her. He isolated, alienated, took control over, like, couldn't go to the grocery store without a fight. Everything was, you're cheating on me. And then he would cry and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. He's already abused his current girlfriend now. She's already came to me, too. 
A lot of people have reached out to me, like friends or neighbors. In terms of civil recourse, there's the possibility that Leanne's family can file a civil suit against Jason for wrongful death. And Jesse told us that Leanne's ex, Nick, is pursuing a suit of his own on behalf of their daughter. The positive thing about a civil case is that Jason can take his chances at avoiding a subpoena, but may be well held in contempt of court if he does. And in a civil case, you don't have a choice about taking the stand. If you're going to get deposed, you're going to get deposed and you can't say no. And a deposition like that, you know, can really reveal a lot and then lead to criminal charges. This relates kind of back to what happened with OJ. He never took the stand Mm -hmm. in his criminal trial. But I think a lot of true crime people have seen his deposition for the civil case, and it looked bad. Like, they confronted him with so much evidence, like shoes he said he didn't own. Yeah. And then he was wearing in a picture, and he turned, like, green in one photo. Like, I've never seen someone's face drop. So there can be a lot of value in civil recourse. It's not always just about the money. Sometimes a civil case can push a criminal case forward for this reason. Right. And as you'd expect, Jason is not talking to the media because, of course, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. But the cloud of suspicion continues to hover over him regarding Leanne's death, and he hasn't really stayed out of trouble with the law either. In January of 2023, he was arrested for DUI, disorderly conduct, consuming liquor while driving, threats, endangerment, and bribery after he told two officers that he'd give them $10,000 each if they didn't arrest him. He's still drinking. He was ordered not to drink. He's still seen out partying because some of the neighbors and some of the wives of his friends will message me still and say, just so you know, I saw Jason doing this. I saw Jason. He was drunk. He came over. He's at the bar. I've got like 10 people that still message us saying when they see him or when they hear something, stuff like that. He's still not working and still living next door to mommy. And living pretty much off of mom and Leanne's money. The stuff's in a conservative ship, but he's still got some of the life insurance. So he's just living his life like nothing happened, not working. He doesn't have a job because he can't get one because so many people know about it. I'm still in a maze that he's out living his life like nothing happened. And then this past January, he got an aggravated DUI and assault charges with his son in the car. I, I don't get how this guy is getting away with all this stuff. Oh, and then he bribed the police with 10 grand each to let him go. It's, it's insane. Jessie is keeping a watchful eye, and she's not taking this injustice lying down. She's made it her mission to warn every woman who crosses Jason's path of his pattern of abusive behavior in romantic relationships. The girlfriend that he has now, I found her and followed her on Instagram because I was still on his Facebook and social media for a very long time because I had never met him or talked to him. And then... I had started following her sister and I had messaged her sister, like, I'm not trying to overstep my boundaries, but he's dangerous. I please watch out for your sister. Very abusive with my best friend and people like that don't change. And then two or three months ago, she sent me a message on Instagram. She had broke up with him. And then she just went on and told me how he strangled her and how he's taken her phone and accused him of her cheating and how she always says, I'm going to kill myself if you don't come back. But then a couple of days later, after she tells me all this stuff that happened and how she's trying to get charges pressed against him for assault and kidnapping, but she doesn't think that they're going to stick. And it, it just blew my mind. How, how does he keep doing this to people? And he keeps getting away with it. And then two days later, I see them together 
on a post on Instagram. So I message her and I go, what are you doing? Why are you back with him? And then they kind of put it, their accounts to private. So I couldn't see anything anymore. So I don't know if they're still together or not or what's going on. So he's doing the same thing to her. I asked her too, I go, what did he tell you happened to her? And she said just that she had too much to drink and she had fallen and hit her head when she hopped out of the truck to pee. That's what he's telling everybody or that she choked on her vomit too. That's what he's telling people. And we do want to point out that there was no evidence at the scene or the autopsy that Leanne aspirated on her own vomit. So it's not really clear why Jason would perpetuate this lie. It's one of the many frustrating things for Jessie in balancing her journey through grief and wanting to honor her dear friend's memory while continuing to fight for answers. She was more than a friend. So I feel like if it was me, she wouldn't just stop and just wait to see what happens. I feel like she would fight just like we did. And now I think sometimes too, like this is not something I'm ever going to escape from. Like this is something I feel like is, is going to always stay with me. Because in the beginning, when it first happened for two or three weeks, I was just a mess. But you can't let it consume your life. I can't sit here and be sad every day. She definitely would not want me to do that. It's still an open case. And the one of the attorneys had said, it's kind of a good thing that they're not going right now because he might slip up and say something. And then if they tried too soon, they couldn't do it again. So... In some of these cases, it does take years, unfortunately, with, when it's a hard one like this. It's still open, and if any information ever were to come up or anything like that, they would definitely still pursue it, they told us. This case is still open, and all law enforcement needs is that one last puzzle piece that will help secure a conviction. Leanne can still get justice, and she deserves it. Thousands of women across the country today are in the very same position Leanne and Jason's other former partners found themselves in, in a toxic relationship with a bully and coward who thinks he's entitled to control, intimidate, and perpetuate violence against someone more physically vulnerable than themselves. But if there is a moral to this story, it's this. Get yourself a friend like Jesse. Jesse's all in. Jesse's not taking this lying down. And Jesse is not going to let her friend's case go unanswered for and we have a feeling that she's going to be the squeaky wheel that just gets this case solved. Well, huge thank you to Jesse for being our first degree for today's story. And if you or somebody you know needs help, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1 800 799 7233 for anonymous confidential support available 24 7. And if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you just can't get enough first degree. And speaking of Patreon, we'll have a brand new exclusive Patreon episode right in your feed tomorrow. And you can get more by joining our Patreon. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shh. 
Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, Arizona's Family Investigates, Arizona Central, the U.S. Department of Justice, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, the Arizona Legislature, and NBC 12 News and Police Documents. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source.